2: Hello campus cronies. Welcome back to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Dr. Nicole Turner, full-time college administrator, part-time college professor, but always a true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or a crime that's associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from one to five on my serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to five being very serious. This episode is rated a five. When a sophomore from the University of Nebraska, Jessica O'Grady, failed to show up for work and stopped responding to all texts and phone calls, her family reported her missing. But when investigators dug into her case and focused on one prime suspect, Jessica's so-called boyfriend, they quickly shifted the case to a homicide despite never recovering her body. In 2007, the man police say is responsible for Jessica's murder, Christopher A. Edwards, was convicted of second-degree murder. It was the first time in Nebraska state history that someone was convicted of murder without the physical evidence of a body. This episode is titled, The Battle Sword Murder. So without further ado, let's get started. In May of 2006, 19-year-old Jessica O'Grady was finishing up her sophomore year at the University of Nebraska-Omaha. Jessica was described as lively and free-spirited. When she first started college, Jessica majored in social studies, but she wasn't sure exactly what she wanted to do as far as a career. But after she got some experience of working with children at a daycare, she discovered her true passion and she changed her major to education so she could eventually become a teacher and work in childcare full time. As a college student trying to make ends meet, however, Jessica worked part time as a waitress at a local restaurant, the Lone Star Steakhouse. So that's what Jessica was doing. She was going to school, going to work, and hanging out with friends and family in her spare time. To celebrate the end of the semester, on May tenth, two 2006, Jessica and her two friends slash roommates hung out in their off-campus apartment and ordered a pizza, watched movies, and had some cocktails as they discussed their plans for summer break. The three friends slash roommates were enjoying their night in, but between 1045 and 1115 that night, Jessica received a text message and she indicated to her friends that she was going to go to Chris's house for the remainder of the night. Now, her friends assumed she was going to Chris Edwards' house, a guy Jessica worked with at the steakhouse who she had been seeing for the past few months. 19-year-old Chris Edwards was also a fellow student at the University of Nebraska. According to Jessica's friends and family, she was excited about Chris and the possibility of a new relationship. So when Jessica went to Chris's house around 1130 p.m. that night, her friends didn't think too much about it. The next day, however, her friends and family became worried when she never returned home to her apartment and she wasn't answering any texts or calls. This was particularly out of the ordinary for Jessica because she was one to always keep in touch with her loved ones, especially her aunt Shauna, whom she was very close to. After the second day of no returned calls or texts from Jessica, and after she failed to report to work a shift at the steakhouse, her friends and family notified police to report her missing. When police began investigating Jessica's whereabouts, they naturally started looking at the most plausible answers and then worked their way out from there. Since they knew she had gone to Chris Edwards' house, according to her friends, they reached out to him first. But according to an episode of Forensic Files, Edwards told police that he actually did not see Jessica that night. He said they were supposed to meet up, but that she never showed. So when police asked Edwards if he could provide an alibi, He did exactly that. He informed them that he had been at the movies with friends and he even showed them a ticket stub that confirmed he went to a 9.35 p.m. showing of an American haunting. And surveillance footage from the movie theater also confirmed his alibi. Edwards could be seen exiting the theater after the movie ended. Um... But y'all, as soon as I heard this, the crime junkie, crime addict investigator in me immediately went to Google to see exactly how long this movie was. And it was only an hour and 33 minutes. So perhaps add in another 20 minutes for previews, that's still less than two full hours. So technically... To me, his alibi did not really check out because the dude was out by 11.30 p.m. And we know Jessica didn't even leave her house until around that time. So put a pin in that. Anyway, at this point, investigators had no choice but to keep looking for other possible answers as to where Jessica could be. They didn't have to wait long, though, before they got a break in the case. On May 16th, Jessica's vehicle, a Hyundai sedan, turned up after they initially couldn't find it. The car had been abandoned in a parking lot near the steakhouse where both she and Edwards worked. But when they began processing the vehicle for evidence, they noticed something peculiar. You see, it had been cleaned and tidied, basically leaving no trace of anything. This was unusual, though, because Jessica's friends and family said she did not keep a clean and tidy car. In fact, her car was usually the opposite and quite messy. So her car being completely clean was a red flag to investigators. Also on this day, May 16th, after Jessica's car was found, her case was assigned to Omaha Police Detective Eric Nordby. Nordby, who now serves as an internal affairs investigator with the Omaha Police Department and a command chief warrant officer for the 85th U.S. Army Reserve Support Command, told Sergeant David Leeds with the U.S. Army News, quote, this case got my attention because I had a 19-year-old teenager that had multiple contacts with multiple people, and that all stopped abruptly the night of May 10th. On this case, I worked 33 hours straight. Most people don't have that drive, but military people understand it, End quote. And as Detective Nordby and his team continued the investigation, they learned two critical pieces of information— First, they discovered that Jessica was likely pregnant because she told her mother and one of her friends that she had taken a pregnancy test and got a positive result. And second, they discovered that Chris Edwards was not the only Chris in Jessica's life. She had actually dated another man named Chris Ryan several months earlier. With this new information, Police speculated that maybe Jessica became so overwhelmed with the stress of school and the unplanned pregnancy that she might have run away or left on her own. However, that theory was quickly dismissed because one, she didn't take any clothes or personal belongings with her and she also left her pet cat behind, which definitely was not something she would have done. And then two, there was zero activity on her credit cards, her bank account, and her cell phone since the early hours of May 11, 2006. Plus, it was just simply out of character for Jessica to not contact her friends and family, especially her Aunt Shauna, whom she would speak to on a daily basis. Then, after speaking further with Jessica's friends and reviewing her cell phone records, investigators discovered that the last text Jessica ever sent came at 1229 AM on May 11th. It was a text to one of her friends in all caps saying, quote unquote, no more shenanigans for Jessica. According to her friends, Jessica would often use the word shenanigans as code for sex. So they knew the text did in fact come from Jessica. But after this, after 1229 a.m. on May 11th, nobody would ever hear from Jessica again. Now, let's circle back around to the second piece of information that investigators discovered. You know that Jessica had dated another guy several months earlier by the name of Chris Ryan. So, obviously, police looked into him, and at first, their red flag radar went off when they learned that Ryan was a registered sex offender, and he had recently served two and a half years in prison for statutory rape. At this point, Ryan had only been out of prison for about 20 months. But here's the thing. As we know, being a sex offender does not automatically make you a murderer or make you automatically a suspect for harming somebody, right? Because at this point, they don't know where Jessica is. Plus, Chris Ryan also had an alibi. And honestly, in my opinion, his alibi was more legit than Chris Edwards' movie theater alibi. You see, Chris Ryan and Jessica had not been in contact in several months, and phone records could prove it. Leanne Rettelsdorf, the deputy county attorney at the time, said, quote, there was no evidence from phone records, from computers, from friends, that she'd had any additional contact with the other Chris for several weeks, end quote. But Chris Edwards, well, he and Jessica spoke often, and investigators learned that not only had he been dating Jessica, but he had also been seeing another woman as well, a woman named Michelle. In fact, they quickly learned that his relationship with Michelle was appeared to be more serious than his relationship with Jessica. According to an episode of Forensic Files, Jessica and Michelle actually knew each other because they too had worked at the same restaurant. But two-timing Chris told both women different stories. Captain Alex Hayes with the Nebraska Homicide Unit said, quote, Chris was kind of playing both of these girls. One of them, he told her he wanted to be with her and they were going to have a baby together and the other one, Jessica, he indicated that the other girl was more like a fling kind of thing, end quote. And yes, you heard that right. You see, Michelle was pregnant with Edward's baby as well. I say as well because at this point in their investigation, the whole picture was starting to unfold to police. They began to speculate that Jessica had informed Edwards that she was pregnant with his baby and that she was very vocal about wanting to keep it. Investigators discovered that Jessica had even bought prenatal vitamins in preparation for the baby. So police knew they needed to re-interview Edwards because a motive to harm Jessica or do something to her was looking clearer by the day. They decided to go to Edwards' home and just talk to him. The police called it a knock and talk situation. And side note, it was actually Edwards' aunt's home because I guess he stayed in like the basement of her house with a separate entrance and exit from the home or from the main entrance of the home. Anyway, they went there to interview him and they noticed something interesting right off the bat. He talked about Jessica in both the present and past tense. Then they asked him if there was any place in the house that he didn't want them to look at. And y'all, the dude actually said that he didn't feel comfortable with them looking at his bed or camping equipment. Um, Obvi, this was a huge red flag to investigators. So they asked him again where he was on May 10th, and he again said he was at the movies with friends. But what Edwards didn't know at the time was that they had already dug more into the cell phone records of both Jessica and him, and they learned that Edwards and Jessica had been in contact after the movie ended. They discovered that Jessica had called Edwards at 11.48 p.m. that night. And they discovered that on May 11th, so like the next day, Edwards sent a text to Jessica asking why she never showed, but this was odd to investigators because Edwards didn't try to contact her any further after that date, like, at all. Detective Nordby said, quote, After May 10th, he sends her a text and there's no more text after that. He didn't call the police. He didn't call O'Grady's parents. He just stopped trying to contact her. And of course, that raised a red flag with me. End quote. Serving collectors since 1945. The next step was to secure a warrant to really search Edwards' home. But while they were waiting for the warrant, they discovered another piece of peculiar information, or circumstantial evidence, if you will. The day after Jessica disappeared, so on May 11th, Edward stopped at a Walgreens and purchased some weird supplies. He bought poster paint, white shoe polish, and whiteout. Like, you know, ink corrector stuff that I don't think anyone uses anymore. Anyway, they noticed he bought that stuff from his bank statements and then they confirmed it was him who made the purchase from surveillance footage at the Walgreens. Once the warrant came in, though, for to search his house, investigators paid another visit to Chris Edwards and searched his place up and down. And y'all, the evidence they found was overwhelming to say the least. First, in his bedroom, they noticed a large portion of the drywall that appeared to be a vastly different shade of white than the rest of his walls. When they took a closer look, they realized he had tried to cover up a ton of what appeared to be blood droplets, and he had covered it with the stuff he had purchased from Walgreens. A bloodstain pattern analyst noted that the wall and ceiling of his room had at least six different cast-off stains, as in at least six different blows from some sort of object to a human would be the only way that much blood could be in those locations of the wall and ceiling. But that's not the only thing that was covered in blood. Edward's mattress was soaked in it. It had a literal human-sized bloodstain covering the bottom of it, like eight square feet of blood. And what's laughable (laughs) is that Edwards tried to tell investigators that the blood was from his girlfriend's menstrual blood. Um, okay, dude. Anyway, investigators described Edwards' garage as a quote-unquote gold mine. They found transfer blood in his car, as well as a pair of hedge clippers and a dirty shovel in his back seat. So they removed these items and a four-by-four piece of ceiling from his room and they took them to the forensics lab for processing. And just from this overwhelming circumstantial evidence on its own, investigators were certain that something bad happened in Edward's home and that if it were Jessica, she was no longer alive. Detective Nordby said, quote, Initially, I found specks of blood and then a large amount of blood, which led me to believe she did not survive the attack, end quote. But even with this amount of circumstantial evidence, they still needed Jessica's body to make a solid case against Edwards. According to forensic files, law enforcement, canine units, and more than 150 volunteers searched high and low for Jessica's body. But the vastness of open space and land in Nebraska, well, it made it nearly impossible to find her. As in, a body could be hidden relatively easily in Nebraska and never found. What they did have, though, was Jessica's DNA that they could compare to the blood found in Edward's apartment. Crime scene investigator Joshua Connolly said, quote, The way we were able to establish Jessica O'Grady's identity based on DNA was from items of hers that were collected at her house, including her toothbrush, a comb, a razor that she used, and a pair of her underwear. From these items, DNA was collected and compared against each other, end quote. And Jessica's DNA did, in fact, match the blood found in Edward's bedroom. Now, the next step for investigators was identifying the murder weapon, something they had not found yet. But what they could tell from the blood pattern analysis was that the murder weapon was some sort of a large knife. However, when they initially searched his place, they didn't find any type of weapon like that. So they went back to try again for a second search. And this time, they found a box containing two swords with 18-inch blades in his closet, which obviously was not there before, so it's not like they missed it or anything in the first search. It just wasn't there. Crime scene investigator Joshua Connolly said, quote, How stupid is this kid? I just couldn't believe that he had, if these were the weapons, he had brought him back. He probably didn't think that we would be coming back. End quote. So they determined that the two swords they found were actually Bangkok battle swords, which are often used in martial arts performances. So not like props, but real life, legit battle swords. And when they processed these swords, they found traces of human blood along one of the blades, blood that also matched Jessica's DNA. They also lifted a DNA profile from one of the blade's handles, which matched Edward's DNA. So, with all this forensic evidence, investigators decided to arrest Edwards and he was officially charged with Jessica's murder. Although, I will say, he continued to deny any involvement. Go figure. Here's the thing, though. They still needed to prove that Jessica was dead and not just missing. But they kept coming back to the scientific fact that whoever shed that much blood could not be alive. And that, along with the mounds of other circumstantial evidence they had, is what they hung their hat on as they went to trial. During the trial, which occurred in April of 2007, prosecutors revealed their ultimate theory of what transpired between Jessica and Edwards. They believed he was upset about the pregnancy and that the two had argued about keeping it. After a while, though, Edwards seemed to calm down, and he agreed to talk it out with Jessica, which is what they believed she had planned to do the night of May 10th, you know, when she went to his house after the movie ended. Prosecutors argued that the movie ended early enough for Jessica to meet Edwards at his place around midnight. Now, prosecutors aren't sure exactly what transpired once Jessica arrived to Edwards' house, but they believe the two did discuss the pregnancy and their relationship. And apparently, Jessica's friends said that Jessica actually knew about Michelle, the other woman, and her being pregnant with Edwards' baby as well. So prosecutors believed that Edwards felt backed into a corner, that no matter which woman he chose, he would be helping to support two kids on a cook's salary. Uh, Because that's what he was. He was one of the cooks at the steakhouse they worked at. Anyway, prosecutors argued that sometime in the middle of the night while jessica was sleeping and after she sent that text to her friend about no more shenanigans edward struck her multiple times with one of the bangkok swords he owned according to forensic files evidence from the blood spatter showed that he struck jessica at least seven times with the sword while she lay there sleeping so let me backtrack just a minute so if you remember i earlier said that the blood stain analyst noted she had been struck at least six times but she further explained on the episode of Forensic Files that you always have to add one extra blow for the initial strike, which actually totaled seven different strikes of the sword. So afterward, Edwards then put Jessica's body into the trunk of his car and took it somewhere to bury it. And then he took Jessica's car and left it parked near the steakhouse where they worked. Now, As for the defense at Edwards' trial, they simply tried to poke holes in the prosecution's case and establish reasonable doubt. And the defense really only had one witness, a woman who claimed to have a child with him. So just to be completely transparent, I'm not sure if the woman who testified in his defense at his trial was Michelle or if it was another woman altogether. Either way, The woman testified that she had slept in his bedroom after Jessica vanished. So after May 10th and 11th, and the woman said nothing was alarming or out of the ordinary to her. She said to her knowledge, Jessica and Edwards had only slept together once like a one-time affair, which was at least three weeks prior to her disappearance. But whatever strategy the defense was using, it didn't work. The jury found him guilty of all charges, and he was convicted of second-degree murder and the use of a deadly weapon to commit a felony. He was sentenced to 80 years to life for Jessica's murder and another 20 years for the felony offense. According to Forensic Files, Edwards was initially offered a lesser sentence in return for disclosing the location of Jessica's body, but he refused to take the deal and kept his mouth shut. Over the years, investigators have tried multiple methods to find and recover her body, but unfortunately, it remains missing to this day. Which means Edwards was the first person in Nebraska history to be convicted without the physical evidence of a body. After the trial, though, Jessica's aunt, whom she was so incredibly close to, Shauna Stanzel, pleaded with Edwards to reveal where he hid her body. Shauna said, quote, it's over now. Please tell us where she's at. We've suffered through 10 months of this, and it's time for us to know so that we can give her a peaceful burial that she deserves. End quote. However, Shauna does rest assured knowing that all the forensic evidence painted the picture of the crime and led to Edward's conviction. Shauna said, quote, The forensics told Jessica's story, plain and simple. They spoke where she could not, where her body could not tell a story. Her blood spatters, that told the story. End quote. Now, that would normally be where I wrap up the episode. But, in part, because of the controversy surrounding Edwards' conviction without the evidence of a body, he has drug out his appeals and time in court. You see, also, one of the Omaha investigators who worked Jessica's case, a man by the name of David Kofoid, was caught in some serious shady stuff. As in, it was proven that he tampered with evidence in other Omaha cases and he even served jail time over it. So, if you're thinking Edwards and his attorneys jumped all over this fact to try to appeal and request a new trial, then you'd definitely be right. So, Edwards first appealed in 2009, which was quickly rejected. Then again in 2012. However, in 2012, the Nebraska Supreme Court granted Chris Edwards a hearing to consider the claims about possible evidence planted by Kofoid. The same judge who presided over Edwards' trial back in 2007 heard and reviewed the claims, but his opinion didn't change. The judge denied him a new trial and said there was enough overwhelming evidence to support the initial guilty verdict. Edwards' latest appeal came in 2018, according to WOWT, an NBC affiliate station in Omaha, but that appeal also was rejected. So as of today, in July of 2023, Edwards is serving his sentence at the Tecumseh State Correctional Institution in Nebraska. He will be eligible for parole in 2056. Okay, y'all, that officially brings us to the end of Chronicle 53. Be sure to check out my social media where I always post photos associated with each case and episode. You can now find me at Campus Crime Chronicles on both Facebook and Instagram. Or you can follow my personal account on Instagram, at Nicole K. Lynn. That's K-A-L-Y-N-N. And be sure to check out my TikTok for some additional campus crime stories. Okay, well that's all for today, so bye for now. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by GRE Gassaway. Tune in again in two weeks for the next Chronicle.